0: Plague Diaries, episode 19. I didn't think we'd be doing uh, more than, I don't know, maybe eight or nine of these, but we're almost uh, into 20 now. That was X with White Girl off of Los Angeles, and uh, it's just that kind of day. I drove down to Tom's River today to get a COVID-19 test. Um, you know, generally, I, I go every few weeks, uh, you know, I'm out and about in the world, but um, wear my mask but there are times when I don't wear my mask when I'm you know training and stuff like that but I just want to stay safe and yes I realize that I'm taking a risk doing that but I don't see anyone I'm here by myself and um, when I go see my family I quarantine and I make sure that I get tested and all that jazz so I'm being responsible but I'm also trying to live a full of life as I possibly can uh, until some kind of resolution in, is done. And um, be it vaccines or, or immune systems or whatever. Uh, just got to keep trucking. Now another interesting thing is uh, last week I spent eight hours masked up in a room with complete strangers. Taking an exam. And uh, for those of you who know me personally, you know that for the better part of this year, I've been studying for uh, the professional engineering exam for mechanical engineering in uh, New York State. It got, had to get it rescheduled twice, and I finally took it on December 5th, Saturday, and uh, I received a passing grade, and it's uh, like a huge weight. I've been lifted off of my chest and um and I feel pretty awesome. This is the first weekend that I've actually had time to myself to delve back into the things that I love i e making music, reading, writing, watching fun movies, you know, and just getting into weird, interesting stuff um every weekend of this entire year, with a few exceptions uh, I've spent hitting the books you know easily putting in about 15 hours 16 hours a week studying sometimes more than that and it's uh it's a big accomplishment it's something I should have did you know maybe 16 17 years ago I should have did this but I um you know I was busy trailblazing across the world playing festivals making records touring and running away from this uh career that I have and um You know this past year uh, no tours so I decided I'm home I have time I might as well get this thing done it'll help me and uh, and also I just love achieving I like doing things that are hard and difficult and this is probably one of the more difficult things I've tried to do in my life and uh, I was successful and I'm pretty happy about that so yeah, the exam itself, eight hours in a room in Manhattan in one of these testing centers. Yes, there was, uh, you know, social distancing. I wasn't on top of anybody. We all were wearing masks. But you know how it is. You know, I, 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 uh, I felt a lot of anxiety because that's a long time, you know, to be in a room with a bunch of people breathing, exhaling, you know. And uh, so, I, you know, I got my exam today. The local area uh, baseline, Project Baseline site in Edison is all booked up. I couldn't get anything. So the nearest place that I was able to um, get this test was all the way down in Tom's River, which is like, I don't know, maybe 50 miles from here in Ocean County. So, I, you know, sun, it was a nice little Sunday, man. It was a beautiful day out. It was warm. I drove down. You know, it took about an hour listening to some good music. Um, I was rocking some, you know, some evoking this X record. Los Angeles is uh, the kind of uh, cool Sunday driving on the highway kind of music as far as I'm concerned. So that's where that song plays uh, an important part in the day. Uh, took the uh, took the test. They got their shit together a lot more down there in the Tom's River uh, location. I was in and out like it was a drive up. You're at the uh, drive-through area. The guy hands you this vial. He hands you a Q-tip. Boom, boom, boom. Done. Up here in Edison, there's like this weird, you know, contraption that looks like it's from, you know, like Brazil or something, where they blow this thing through a chute and you take it out of this compartment. And I don't know. Too many steps. Too bad Ocean County is uh, an hour away. I would go down there to do my um. COVID testing. Right before Thanksgiving, I got one uh, because I was going to see my family. And, um, you know, about a week before I went to one of these because I couldn't get an appointment at Edison once again. I went out to uh, one of these urgent care places. And, uh, you know, after I got the test, I just quarantined myself. I stayed home. I didn't see anybody. I didn't do anything. I just stayed in the apartment. That was an experience because the place opened at 8 o'clock in the morning. I went out on a weekend. I think it was a Saturday. So I got there at like 6.45, and there was like eight people ahead of me waiting on line. They had like lawn chairs, and I was like, man, this is like heavy scene here. I thought I was going to be the first one in line, but, you know, next time I got to do this, I'm going to get there at like 6, you know, and I'm sure there, yeah, maybe there'll be someone there before me, but... For this upcoming uh, Christmas holiday, I'm probably going to get there super early, maybe the Sunday before, give myself about five or s- five or six days of quarantine time, and um, try to get there at six as early as I can, and try to be in and out. Even if you're first in line, it still takes you like an hour to, to do the thing, and I find that to be really inefficient, but yeah, these people are, hey man, you know, respect, man respect to all these these health workers, um, you know they're the ones in the front lines. They're the ones dealing with potentially sick people on a daily basis and uh, I'm, I, I should stop complaining, man, I, I really should, so uh, I'm going to. I got all the time in the world to do this stuff. you know, I, I, I think it's important to get tested and uh, and yeah, I don't know. I just um, I got ahead of myself there. But yeah, the PE exam done never got to think about it again uh it will give me a nice little raise at my job and um yeah I don't know it's just one of these things I even when I wasn't doing this type of work I've always thought that I should have actually done this thing just to be just to just as an accomplishment in life you know it's like one of those things that you want to be able to do at least once you know and uh yeah, I'm just really happy. I feel fortunate. Somehow I pulled it off, you know. So, for this episode, i got a couple questions. Uh, many people have actually asked, why no more Savage Gold Coffee? And, uh, yeah, I mean, I miss doing it in a way. Uh, it just, back when... Um, when we were doing a lot of touring around uh, Grand Annihilation, uh, that was kind of the indicator that it was gonna be very, very difficult to keep up on this thing. So I just, um, I was putting a lot of time, a lot of effort, uh, and there just wasn't the return that I needed. And eventually I just started looking at how I was spending my time how I was, uh, you know, what, what, what I needed to do to keep things moving forward, how much personal resources of time, energy, and funding it was going to require to keep Savage Gold Coffee going forward, and I, w- and I owed money to people, man. I, was, uh, I owed money. I was uh, in a position where I owed some, some money to people that fronted me some product in good faith. And I was paying it down, uh, things got a little bit out of, you know, I mean, I'm making a, it doesn't, it's not as bad as it sounds. I, I wasn't, it wasn't like the mob was after me and people were like, you know, I was ducking guys like Tony Soprano or something like that. It was just, I don't like, I like having a zero balance with everyone. I don't like carrying any kind of debt, you know, when it comes to friends and people I respect and, uh. So that was one sign that maybe Savage Gold Coffee was not something that I should pursue once I pay down this debt that I had. I think that I wanted to avoid being in a situation like that again. So I decided after much thought that at least for now, I'm going to uh, have to shut it it down. And uh, maybe it'll come back. Maybe... um, You know maybe after things start progressing in other areas of my life i'll be able to get some kind of investment from some someone a partner or something like that to help me really launch this thing and there was a lot of things i wanted to do i mean i remember there was a yeah i was doing a lot of live sales you know that was a lot of fun uh going to these events selling coffee you know that was great like the the Vitus, uh flea market was a lot of fun and i moved a lot of a lot of bags of coffee sold a lot of you know cups of coffee too and met people got the word out and it was really fun you know but um in a big way you know i i really it needed to be a lot more successful than it was to be more than just a hobby you know and that's kind of like what i was trying to do i was just spread too thin with everything and that one unfortunately had to go and my, one of the one of the things I lament is that the the the, um, the cold press of uh, the cold brew coffee was never really out there. You know, like I was able to cold brew a bunch of stuff and sell it to some, you know, some custom made, you know, batches for people locally, but I was never able to get it out there in a bottled, you know, mass produced, uh, you know, form for people. And I think that, um, man, the dark roast that we had to this day is still probably one of my favorite coffees I've ever had. And that, as a cold brew, was like pretty mighty. And uh, a lot of people dug it. But it just, I, I needed somebody with deep pockets, man, to, to you know, to invest. You know, and get this thing distributed. And I uh, just couldn't do it on my own. And it's unfortunate, but I... I mean, it, it was a good time, good run. A lot of people enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I was a, I was like a, you know a big fan of it as well. I mean, I was all I drank when when it was when I was rocking and rolling with that. But uh, you know, maybe maybe like I said, maybe down the line we'll go back to this. But I've been uh, drinking Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, some good friends uh, recommended it, and you know my, my buddy Jim guy who booked uh, tombs down in Florida. He's a veteran. He recommended that I uh, check it out. And he also added that I'd be supporting a, a veteran-owned uh, company, and I went ahead and did it. And I think that was really cool, man. I mean, I know, man, these days, over the last four years, everything seems to be really controversial. I mean, I know a lot of guys that were in the military you know, there's a you know a group of guys. A lot of the dudes I know personally, like my closer friends, have similar politics to me. They're kind of left leaning, you know. Uh, but a lot of a lot of dudes from the military, a lot of vets, are, are kind of right wing. Which is, I guess, at the end of the day, before the before the Donald Trump reign of terror, you can agree, you can disagree with someone and be like, all right, this guy's views are a little bit right wing. I'm over here, but at the end of the day, I don't really give a fuck, you know what I mean? But now, if you have anything that might indicate that you're a Donald Trump supporter, suddenly you're this fascistic, uh, you know, evil, you know, evildoer, and unfortunately, a lot of these vet-owned companies um, became fodder for that sort of mentality, which I think that regardless of political leanings, the veterans are probably one of the most exploited groups of people in this country. I mean, the government certainly doesn't take care of them. Uh, they come back from war. And we're at perpetual war right now, so all these guys are war vets. Sometimes they're blown up. And they're not intact. They have like heavy-duty emotional issues that have to be dealt with. And uh, by and large, uh, the government has kind of turned their back on them you know and uh, a lot a lot of you know i think that there should be a move to hire more vets too you know if if there's this move for diversity in, in our country you know cultural diversity you know whatever sexual orientation i also believe that you should try to hire more vets cuz these guys laid it on the line you know they were out there putting their life on the line for everyone and if regardless if you if you believe in the war or not any of these wars that's kind of not really the, the point. The point is that these guys made a sacrifice. And you can also look, look at them, even if you don't agree with the uh, political reasoning behind going to war. They're, they're part of like the, the fallout of this whole thing, so they should be taken care of. Anyway, I support Black Rifle Coffee. I don't know if I agree with all these guys politically, but I think it's a good thing that vets, that's a you know everyone that works there is a vet, they they're taking care of each other, and I I support it. And their coffee is sick, and uh, I'm all about it. I'm I'm just going hard with it, man. There's like the murdered out dark roast. There's just black. Those are the two that I, uh, I I drink regularly. And they got some other special ones that I'm trying to try try all of them, going through the whole the whole batch and just checking it out. And, uh, yeah. yeah, so far so good, man. So that's, uh, you know, that's the bottom line with Savage Gold. And, you know, that question's come up quite a bit. And uh, I just wanted to address it. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens down the line, like I said. Evan contacted me and shared the new single for his band Quell. And uh, it's pretty damn good. And um, I urge you guys to go out there and check it out. Uh, Evan is um, originally from Northern Virginia, moved to California, ended up in Stockholm, Sweden. And based on the information that he sent me, I'm assuming that Quell is uh, kind of a one-man project. And, uh, you know, it has that, that dark, icy black metal sound that uh, I love and probably a lot of you guys love. And... Um, I think it's, uh, the single's pretty cool. Apparently there was a bit of a hiatus with the band. And, um, and now it's returning back to form. And, uh, I, I, I back it. You guys should check it out. That's Quell, Q-U-E-L-L. You can find them on Bandcamp and Facebook. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. And, um. Yeah, they have a new EP called Turning the Sun to Stone, and uh, I back it. Another question that has come up, and I'm sorry, I did not write the gentleman's name down. Um, It could have come from a couple different sources. And I am remiss uh, on noting who actually sent this question in. And... um, I've been under a lot of pressure, man, so you have to forgive me on this. It has to do with uh, horror and, um, you know, the kind of what types of horror I like. And this gentleman said that he prefers more reality-based horror fiction that has to do with, like, serial killers and, you know, stuff like that. So I'm assuming uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is probably, you know, uh, something that's on this guy's radar. And I have to say that uh, I personally am more of a fan of the supernatural elements in horror and cosmic horror. Though I do enjoy uh, kind of the true crime, reality-based, you know, stuff that's out there as well. I mean, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is like a totally fucking powerful movie, man. And scary based on, you know, Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Tool, two actual serial murderers, but I guess one of the things that I can use to um, describe my viewpoint on true crime and like horrific stuff and horror and all these things is use uh, uh, True Detective as kind of an example. The first season, okay. I'm sure many of you out there watched that when it when it was running live week by week, and there was a point where, at uh, you weren't sure that at the end of this show, at the end of this season, if there was going to be a monster. You know, at least I was. I mean, I and that's what kept me going. I there was so much like arcane, esoteric stuff going on, and such incredibly horrible things were happening to people. And you were getting the feeling like you were questioning whether or not there was actually some kind of supernatural being that was involved in this thing, some demon or monster or whatever. And I guess that crossover into reality is what I find really interesting and why I enjoy the supernatural elements, too, because... If you, I've been, you know, I've been reading a lot about demonic possession and, you know, um, exorcisms and things like that. And uh, it's funny, I'm in this like really big Catholic church um, Christianity kick right now where I'm, it's really interested in it. And now the pagan roots of Christianity, the, uh, you know, the Jesuits, you know, and they're the ones who have typically been involved in exorcisms and that kind of stuff. And demonic possession demons and hell you can kind of see these things in a couple different ways i mean obviously uh, there's the narrative that demons are actual entities that exist they're physical beings that reside somewhere in another dimension you know in some realm you know or wherever hell is a actual place the devil is actually a, a You know, Lucifer is a fallen angel, like that kind of stuff. That's one way of looking at it. But then there's, that's a literal sense, a literal way of seeing these things. Um, You know, in orthodox, there's an orthodoxy to that, you know, train of thought. Or the symbolism of those things. I mean, demonic possession, letting demons into your life could be drug addiction could be the chaos that ensues from having bad relationships. And then the darkness that follows all those things could be demonic possession as well. So I have a very broad idea of how all this stuff works. and you know even even my explorations into magic, you know with a K magic, uh, you know meditating on something with intention visualization like all that stuff that that's technically what magic is not like pulling a rabbit out of a hat you know and using symbols and rituals to focus your mind on certain things and you we would be surprised how often positive things happen when you do that now I'm not saying that you're necessarily conjuring forces from beyond to do these things you're maybe you're you're focusing your own will And that is what's actually manifesting. But the ritual, you know, you have all these different talismans that you might use. You might invoke certain colors, certain, you know, uh, scents, symbols, uh, you know, incantations. That might only be focusing your will, you know. Or, and I'm also open to the fact that you actually may be focusing some kind of energy that exists outside of yourself to help you achieve these things. So I, I don't, I'm, I'm very open to this stuff. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, whatever. People have their all, all their different ideas. You know, I, I'm not as much of a materialist as I once was, like years ago. Uh, I was more of a cash and carry kind of guy, like back in the old days. But I don't know. Things have happened to me over the years. I've experienced certain things that have broadened my mind a little bit. So anyway, back to horror. So yeah, I enjoy all kinds of stuff, man. I, I will watch pretty much anything, even if it's a really bad movie. uh, If it has like some kind of horrific element to it, I'll try it out. You know, give it, I'll give it more time than I would say a drama just because there's an element of horror in it. And I definitely gravitate to the supernatural stuff. You know what I mean? And um, but yeah, I thought I thought True Detective. I thought that first season was—I I mean, it turned out to be a crime film, but you know, there's all this like really esoteric stuff in there, which really kept my interest going. So yeah, that was—I uh, like I like it all, you know, the serial killer stuff, and also think about a serial killer, you know, to do those horrible things. You know, there's a certain M.O. that that these guys have, like there are certain upbringings and things like that. That combination of factors could also be the doorway of letting a demonic element into their subconscious, which causes them to do all this murder and evil things. I think that the ideas behind all this stuff isn't as literal sometimes as... Um, as as people play it up to be you know it's like this religious orthodoxy i don't think that it really was meant to be that way like when you read certain religious texts you know and the gods and goddesses and spirits and all this stuff are are like metaphors for other things and that that's what i find really interesting you know and that there's these commonalities between different religions and uh all this stuff and it's like man i i can go on and on about this kind of stuff and i I feel like I misspent my college years by uh, studying heat transfer and thermodynamics and stuff like that. And I probably should have went into this kind of thing, you know, the the roots of religion, you know, history, you know, Mesopotamia, like the, the, you know, Samaria studying Rome and Greece and Egypt and that kind of stuff that would have been way, way more interesting to me. And I think I could have contributed a lot more to society had I actually pursued all that stuff. Now, for those of you out there who um, are following this podcast and also have been listening to you, the Gimme Metal, Metal Matters show, I oftentimes will reference two bands. There's a band called La Gratona and a band called Slaughter Shack. And like, both very obscure, unless you grew up in New England, you know, and maybe New York, you know. La Gritona, Featured uh, Dana Ambrose, who went on to be in Keel Hall. Taz Niles, who was in uh, the Boston hardcore band uh, Eye for an Eye. And he also was the original drummer in Anodyne, which is a band that I played in before I was in Tombs. You know, it started back in 1997, actually. And uh, Andy Donheiser, who has uh, dropped off, uh, you know, I don't know what happened to him. He's he's around somewhere. Uh, he was also in a band called Michael Mancini that was uh, that Taz played in for a while, and he was in some kind of th- some thrash band before Lagratona. And he was this incredible bassist and guitarist. And uh, I just kind of wish he'd done more things with his with his talent, you know. And Colin Burns, one of the best frontmen I've ever experienced live. I think he was. One of the most charismatic, intense front men I've ever seen, honestly. And Colin was in La Gritona. He was like the focal, focal point of the band. And prior to that, he was in Slaughter Shack, which there are almost this, like they have like, in my mind at least, they have this legendary status because there's not a lot of material available by them. I mean, they have a lot of recordings, to my knowledge, the only actual release they have is a split with this band called Built Spear, which uh, turned into Stompbox, who eventually got signed to Sony Records during the 90s uh, feeding frenzy of uh, post-Helmet like independent music. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how old a lot of you guys are, but back in the 90s, you know, Nirvana opened the door to alternative music, AKA, you know, punk rock, you know, metal whatever. I mean, death metal never really, I mean, Nirvana like kind of opened the door to the underground. Death metal definitely stayed deep in the underground, like black metal. Like if you, none of that stuff became mainstream as a result of, Nirvana didn't help any of those bands out, let's say. But stuff that had like a commercial vibe, I mean, you know, Helmet, I don't really see them, in the beginning I didn't see them as being very commercial, but yeah, you could you could see the appeal of Helmet. There's like a groove. Those guys were more artsy and more in line with like this kind of Glenn Bronca like noise thing. And then all the biohazard type dudes latched on to their grooves and they became very popular with like hardcore types, you know, and and you could even blame Helmet for uh for new metal, which is Like the, uh, that's kind of the thing. Like a lot of people are like, yeah, such a great band, but they, they inspired such a, uh, I mean, I'm not a fan of any of those bands, so I'm going to use my opinion and say like one of the worst expressions of metal in, uh, you know, in the history of metal in my opinion. So anyway, so Slaughter Shack was around in the eighties. I saw them play a handful of times they were a very popular band. Um, And in Boston, there was a thing called the WBCN rock and roll rumble, which, you know, BCN was a a major rock radio station in new England. And um, they, they sponsored this thing every year. It's basically a battle of the bands and it would be, you know, I, I forgot exactly how you qualified, but, you know it was like uh a couple nights several nights uh different bands played on a bill uh I, there'd be judges they picked bands and then a band won and uh they got all these props and you know perks and everything studio time like all that kind of stuff well if i memory serves me correctly slaughter shack won one year It was like probably 1989 or something like that or 1988 somewhere in there that range maybe 1990 i I don't know it was a while ago so there's also a thing called the curse of the wbcn rock and roll rumble where people who generally won that that was the high point of their career and nothing really happened for them later so i don't know they kind of disbanded shortly after the rock and roll rumble and uh I was around the time that I you know, graduated from college and uh, I was leaving town and all this stuff. And then a few years later, I moved back to Boston and uh, I was out at one of the infamous uh, Tuesday night builds bar uh, rock nights where every Tuesday night there'd be like a sick like lineup of local bands playing. It was definitely a cool thing, man. It was like a fun... You know, I, I was a young guy. I was in my early 20s, man. So it was like, that was the thing to do, man. You go down, stay out late, you know, get up, go to work, tired. It's Tuesday. And I saw this band, uh, Suicide King. It wasn't even La Gratona. Suicide King was like the early version of La Gritona. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is like pretty pretty cool. It's like, and that guy looks so familiar. And then I heard his vocals. And it was Colin from Slaughter Shack, except that he looked totally different. Slaughter Shack had this kind of, um, you know, Danzig, like heavy metal kind of thing. Colin had like long hair. You know, he had like a very, you know, biker-ish, like Axl Rose kind of thing. You know, he was like one of the early dudes with tattoos, you know, sleeves. Not a lot of people had that back then. Uh, you know, I just remember his being this kind of shirtless, like long haired guy with tattoos and this brutal fucking voice, you know, and the band was this like, you know, mid tempo metal, like Danzig, uh, you know, Celtic frost kind of thing. And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. You know, kind of like a little bit of a doom kind of thing. Not really doom, but you know, they were slower at the time. You gotta remember in the eighties thrash and speed metal that was like the thing so anything that wasn't thrash had like to me was slow at that time so anyway this this guy shows up on stage suicide king two guitar players uh bass players you know like doing some crazy bass lines singer short hair rollins looking shorts and just intense and uh it, it it kinda reminded me of like the Rollins band and I was like, Yeah, this is like exactly what I like. And turns out it's the same guy, okay. Suicide King, for whatever reason, turns into Gratona. And then I watched them. I think I might I tried to see them every single time they played locally and uh you know, back then people weren't handing out record deals. So they, they were able to do, they had like a bunch of seven inches and splits and demo tapes and things like that out. And, uh, you know, they made, they finally made a LP. Um, and then the band broke up and I, I don't even, I was only a few years. They burned brightly for a very short period of time. I was introduced to Taz and we started Anodyne and, uh, that's a whole other story, <laughs> but years later, the entire Lagratona catalog was re-released by Tortuga Records, which um, Mark Thompson from Hydrahead fame, um, it was his personal record label, and I wrote some liner notes for it, and uh, it's a great collection of music that was just maybe a few years ahead of the curve. I think that um, I think that if Lagratona had come out maybe 3 or 4 years later when dead guy was a thing and you know bloodlet and all those bands on victory the victory well not victory records but those bands are on victory and that was able to you know a- attract enough people that liked hardcore music to check out something that was a little bit different if Lagratona had been able to ride that wave everyone would know who the fuck they were because they were like a superior band to all those bands in my opinion. And I love dead guy, but I like Lagatona better. You know, they're just, yeah, they're just a little darker. You know, I thought Colin's lyrics are always really cool and they're better than any of the other bands lyrics. So anyway, I, I've been in touch with Colin. Um, uh, just sharing texts over the last few days, and I, I asked him if, if he had the Suicide King demo, and um, because I I had it, I I was I went looking for it. I you know I've been living here for what I don't know five six months seven months, and I still haven't fully unpacked. You know I think that's a typical thing for people. I went through my cassettes, and I could I would have sworn that I had the suicide king demo i can see it i know i know the songs and i can visualize it but it's not in my fucking collection now i don't know what happened to it it's gone it slipped away into the ether like so many other things and there's a song called 21 which i just been like i just need to fucking hear it man so i hit up colin i was like hey by the way do you uh you have a digital version and i said no i don't i don't have You know, either he doesn't have it digitally, or he doesn't even have the demo. And um, he's like, "Yeah, you might want to check with Taz about it," and uh, because he's he's kind of the archivist of all this stuff, and he was working on some project to keep everything archived before all these like analog cassette tapes disintegrate. So uh, yeah, I hit him up, and um, Colin did. Before that, he did send me a bunch of cool stuff, like an interview with. um, lagratona like a practice tape with 21 you know and and uh yeah the interview was cool it was actually it's that that kind of stuff really fucking hits me hard sometimes like when it's practice tapes too like where you can hear people talking in the background and then you know you, you it's like a a weird portal into the past you know and and the same thing with these like random interviews where it's like you know the shit it was like it's like a weird echo of something that happened so long ago and it takes you right back to that moment and I, and I get really really uh it's, it's a real heavy feeling sometimes So um that was cool and then Taz got back to me and he's like you know what I don't know I don't know I I don't know if I have it so but he said but in the meanwhile check this out and he sent me um you know, part of this project he was doing to try to archive a bunch of stuff, and it was like all this live recordings of different bands. There's like Wrecking Crew, uh, there's like Lagratona. uh, there's a uh, you know a bunch of hardcore stuff like uh Bold, um, you know, live at TT the Bears, you know, which I think that does, that club doesn't exist anymore either. Stuff from The Rat, which doesn't exist, but The Rat was like a super important venue in Boston, you know, for independent music. And, uh, I mean, you can read all about the Rat. Maybe someone will make a documentary about it someday, you know. And one of the things that Taz included on there was the Anodyne WJUL live set, which I don't even know if I have that. And what's important about that is that most people that might know about Anodyne they probably are thinking about the lineup of the band, the three-piece lineup that had me and Josh and Joel, you know, which, I mean, that was, that was the lineup that did most of the stuff. Like we put out most of the, that was the lineup that was on the the more well-known, I mean, well-known, I mean, out of a band that was relatively unknown, the more well-known records were made by us. Three were the ones who went out and toured the hardest, we were out there, If you most likely if you live in a different country or you live in a different coast than the East Coast, that's the version of the band that you saw. You know, there was... But the first lineup was a very, very good lineup. It was me on guitar. I really didn't do any singing, actually. El Nayor, who uh, mostly these days was probably known for uh, 27, a band that he does with his wife Maria Christopher, and they're a fine band. Um, He also played in a band called Spore, which uh, back in the early 90s were, they were like a legit band. They were on Tang Records, they toured a lot, they were pretty well known, and uh, Spore was cool. They were like a very, very good band. Um, He played guitar, and did most of the vocals and did all this like other noise related stuff. He had a sampler, all this cool stuff. And Mike Davis, who um was in Luca Brazzi, Black Helicopter, like a, an insane bass player for a guy who like the stuff he played in that band surprised me. Cause like I never really knew what his technical abilities were. and I was like, Oh, this dude can fucking throw down. So, Anyway, this morning, I listened to this uh, recording and I was, it was, it was I, I got like goosebumps listening to it because, not because it was so good, but because it just was like, I said, again, a portal into like another time. It was like a time travel machine where like, it just takes you right back to that moment. And um, it's almost 20, let's 90, this, I don't know the date it has to be over 20 years ago. This recording was made and W J U L live at the fallout shelter is like, I don't even know if J U L does these things anymore, man. I, I, I should look that up actually, but playing live on the fallout shelter was a thing. It was a very, very cool thing. And it was a Monday night show. Uh, it was in Lowell, Massachusetts, which I don't know, it was like maybe 45 minutes North of Boston. And, uh, I played that Fallout Shelter thing with a couple of different bands. And um, you know, I played with my band Otis back before that was like my first real band. <laughs> uh Anadyne played. I also played with uh 454 Big Block and that was kind of uh destroyed the relationship I had <laughs> with with Scott Kahn because uh he was the kid who really ran the whole show there and we were such dicks to him. That uh, it it ruined my friendship with uh, with Scott and Scott Khan. If you're out there, I apologize. After all these years, uh, I shouldn't have allowed those guys to be so brutal with you. And um, yeah, I feel I feel bad. It's something that I f- felt bad about for many decades at this point. But anyway, it, it was a fun time. You know, I I was you know, I'm a, I'm a dude, I'm like my late twenties and, um, you know, all, all this kind of playing it live on the radio, having shit, mic, you know, mic'd up and doing this stuff was like relatively new to me and, and it was exciting and, you know, people were interviewing you were asking you questions about stuff and it was just very, very new and exciting for me. And, and it just, it just, the whole thing from start to end was just fun and interesting. You get you show up there. I remember, uh, Lowell, Lowell. I don't know how it is these days, but back then was not a very, it was kind of a rough town. So I just remember the memories of going to this Dunkin' Donuts on the way in Lowell. Once we got off the highway, we would hit this Dunkin' Donuts. And I just remember like this real hard ass, like Puerto Rican chick was like working behind the counter with like, she had like some kind of gang, like neck tattoo and like, but she was like kind of hot too. You know what I mean? But I was afraid of her. I was terrified of her and i was like yeah you know large black coffee please and i was just like didn- couldn't process the whole thing so attracted yet scared you know you guys have probably all felt this at one time in your life and then we would go to the studio it was on the campus and um you know like it's funny being like 27 you know years old and College people generally are, you know, 18 to 21. And now those kids, they feel like, like little kids to me, that people in that age group. But even at 27, I was like, I have these fucking kids, man, you know. But i have only just a few years removed from that age group. It's like this weird paradox, you know. Um, so, yeah, I felt like, you know, really like kind of world weary, you know, been through it you know gnarly guys like walking through the college campus and i'm just like but in the reality we're just like a bunch of kids just a couple years older than them too you know and um yeah you load in i remember the load in was kind of a pain in the ass you had to like lug stuff through like some kind of you know hallway setup i mean it's not a venue so it's like in the basement of some building and uh yeah, you'd set up, you get like mic everything up. The sound guy—I can't remember his name—but he was um, a dude that actually, I think, became like a front of house guy somewhere, and uh, went on the road. Things like that. Um, yeah, you load in, do your sound check, get everything set up, and then there's like a couple hours to kill, and they order you pizza. You know, now let's remember we're in Massachusetts, so the pizza's not that good. But hey. It's part of the whole experience. You know, they're playing a bunch of music, a bunch of cool local bands. You know, it's a college radio station. It's in that that mindset, that vibe. You know what I mean? And um, it's time for you to play. And I'm like, shit, this is like being broadcast over the air. And you do your thing. And it's fucking cool. And it's over with. Go into the, into the control room. Introduce yourself. I think I hope I have those in. Inter- man, maybe I should. I should archive this shit too, man. It'd be cool. I, I, now that I live like a human being, it's like it should. It should be a priority of mine to to start sorting through all these things and making them, you know, for posterity in case I get like shot and killed by like a right wing extremist or something like that. You know what I mean? It's it's at least sorted out where people can find this stuff. You know. Um, yeah. So that's uh, it's just fun. That stuff's fun, and I don't do fun stuff as much as anymore these days. And uh, yeah, the radio live, the live on the radio stuff's always been a real blast, man. I mean, we've done a ton of them. I've done a ton of them, just over the different bands. Like, Anodyne's done it a bunch of times. Like, uh, you know, my brief stint in Four Fifty Four Big Block, we did it a couple times. Like, you know, um, Tombs has done it a bunch. You know, one of the one of the you know that that's some cool. You know, we've done a lot of those things. One of the coolest things that in my life that we've ever I've ever done was be on the Pat Duncan show. Yeah, the, the uh WFMU guy, Pat Duncan. And he's kinda like the John Peel of New Jersey, if you ask me. Man, you, you look up his show and he's had like Black Flag, the Misfits, Neurosis, uh, you know, Sam Hain. Like It's insane if you, you know, all these great bands and, and, and he invited Anodyne to perform on his show. And I was like so honored by that, man. And it was just the coolest fucking thing, man. And, uh, yeah, man, I, I I probably have that Duncan set. See, once there we go. I need to get a handle on these things, but yeah. So yeah, that's, um, yeah, that, that's the, the story for today, man. Just uh, playing live on the radio and just the past. And, you know, time flies on broken wings, man. How time flies, you know. So, yeah, I hope everyone's doing well. Um, I'm going to try to get back into doing these things regularly. I got some plans for 2021 with this show. And now that I have uh, free time and I'm out of the P.E. exam prison, I can uh, I can start putting stuff together. And um, yeah, If you like the show, it's pretty casual. You know, I don't know how many people are out there listening, but if you're into, you want to hear a little bit more, more, you know, professional thing, check out, uh, metal matters. It's on everywhere. Everything. Apple music, Spotify, YouTube, all those channels. Uh, know, I'll talk with a bunch of people. Um, the coolest thing that happened was, uh, talking with, uh, with Steph flam from God in and winter. Great, great interview. Interesting guy. Someone that I'm hoping in the future we can we can I can actually see him in person and have discussions, things like that. And um, yeah, there's a bunch of cool stuff going on. We're 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 on hi- we're going on hiatus right now for the holidays, but the last episode's coming up on uh, on Tuesday, and uh, that's the year finale of our top fives or whatever. And then we'll be back in January. And then if you like horror movies, there's Necromaniacs, which is a weekly show. And our year-end final 2020 is coming up on Thursday. And uh, we're taking the rest of the month off like everyone else. And um, that'll be back in January. So that's it, man. And uh, I'll catch you guys soon. And everyone be safe. Take care. (laughs) This is what I never told you Yes, we all had this too